Hello, and welcome to Unconditional Love Fellowship with Bishop Malcolm Smith. This is episode number 122, The Rejoicing God. For more information and more teachings by Malcolm Smith, including videos, MP3 downloads, and books, please visit www.malcolmsmith.org. And now, Bishop Malcolm Smith. The Lord be with you, and I want to continue this week looking at Luke's Gospel in chapter 15, and if you were not with us last week, I really urge you to check it out and listen. However, if you were not, what I'm saying today stands on its own two legs. And so in chapter 15 of Luke, we have seen that there are certain key phrases, and I want to look at those phrases even more closely than I did before. And the, the, the first is with the parable of the lost sheep, which is the first parable of this chapter. And it finishes when the shepherd has found the sheep, his response is, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. Now, I know you've heard those words before, if you're familiar with the scripture at all, but just let me repeat it and let it settle into your mind. Rejoice with me, says the shepherd, for I have found my sheep which was lost. And then in the second parable of the lost coin, the woman says the same thing. She finds her coin and says, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. And then we come to the parable of the prodigal son, or I prefer the lost son. And as we shall see that this prodigal son, in fact, all of those parables, but especially this one, is all about the father of the son. And he gives a reason to the elder brother in verse 32, where he says, in my translation, we had to be merry. We just had to. And we had to rejoice. For this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live, was lost and has been found. And as I pointed out, other translations say it was necessary. Okay, the, the, these phrases, they are the keys, obviously. They're repeated in each parable. Rejoice with me. It's necessary. We just had to be merry and to be glad and rejoice. Now, there's something radical here, and I mean radical. Jesus is the revelation. He's the drawing back of the curtains. He, he is the appearing within our humanity of the exact image and likeness of the invisible God. He is God who is now with us, and with us he is revealing and explaining who God really is. And, and so he has said that he who has seen me has seen the Father, and there's no way to the Father, he said again, except through him. So every action of Jesus, every word that Jesus spoke, it is all telling us this is what God is really like. Now, yes, we, we, we dealt with that fact. And now I'm saying that being the case, I come to these parables and there is an overwhelming statement here concerning who God is. And that statement is radical. If this is the revelation of God through the lips of Jesus, as he is giving answer to the religious leaders of the day, then this is more radical than one would ever think. You see, he, he says, and I tried to emphasize it, rejoice with me, 
That is, the shepherd is saying, I am filled with joy over finding my sheep. Now, I want everybody to rejoice with me. The woman says the same thing. I want everybody to rejoice with me because I have found my coin. And then the story of stories, the, the son, it is the father who is rejoicing at the return of the son. Please hear me. This is radical because in today's world, shall I say, in today's Christianity, in today's evangelical approach to Scripture, we would expect, we would expect it to be the returning son who would be beside himself for joy that things are not turning out as he has anticipated. Instead, he's being forgiven and accepted and welcomed. You would expect the son to be saying to the neighbors, rejoice with me, my father has accepted me. But it isn't. In fact, the son is strangely silent, uh, after he's been overwhelmed by the love of his father. And it is the father, all the way through, read this parable again. It might be that you've never read it like you'll read it then, because this is all about the father rejoicing. It's the father who announces, in effect, I'm satisfied, finally, I'm satisfied. I am fulfilled. My heart is overflowing with joy because this, my son, was dead and so on. He's returned. And it's the father who essentially lays hold upon the son who is the returning son who who has no hope of acceptance in his return. But now it's the father who lays hold upon his son. You could say draws his son, insists that his son join him in rejoicing, in in a party and dancing and music of of extravagant joy. It's the father who goes out to the elder brother later on and begs him to come in and rejoice with everybody because the son has come home. It's the father that flings this party to involve the entire village. Um, All the neighbors are brought into this. A whole jolly calf is, is roasted because... It's the father. Do do you see that? And and this is backwards to everything that most of us were raised with concerning the gospel. It's the father who rejoices because the son has been received, forgiven, accepted. It's the father who's beside himself because now that empty chair at the dining room table will be filled. His son is home. It's the father delighting that the son has returned. Now this brings us to the very heart of the parable. I've heard many sermons on this. As I said last week, I have made it a point of of studying this chapter for the last over 50 years. I am drawn to it. This is the most articulate presentation of the mission of Jesus. And I've heard many sermons. I've gone out of my way to read books about it, to see what others are saying. And and so many describe this whole thing in terms of the wretchedness of the son. That's why we call him the prodigal. Uh, It's all about this rebellious son who goes off into the far country of the Gentile world, where he'll be away from his father and away from his father's faith. And there, his behavior, 
then when his behavior has landed him in the pig house, then, then he comes home. And, but really and truly, I mean, there is truth to that, but really and truly, this parable is about something deeper than that. It's about something that has gone wrong that caused all of that behavior. And that behavior can only stop when that something else has been put right. And what is it? What's this parable about? This parable is about love. Yes, get it deep in your heart. This story that Jesus told to explain to us who the Father, God the Father, really is and our relationship to him, this parable is about love. And as it opens and the son is leaving the house and he's going off with um, a third of the father's cash and he's going to the far country, it, that, what is that? It is love. The father's love is being rejected by the son. And he's going to the far country to get as far away from his father as he possibly can. It is the father's love extended to the son, but it has not been received. It has not been returned to the father in, in a relational love. No, it's love rejected. It's love uh, that, that bounces off the son. It is about, at this point, uh, at the beginning of the parable, it's about relationship that is now broken. You could say this is the story uh, of a broken relationship that is going to be restored. And so uh, a love rejected, um, a, a relationship that is now smashed and broken and, and broken from the son's side. The father never stops loving the son. The father's love pursues him into the far country. But for the son, he has broken that relationship with his father. And he journeys into what? Into a false, into an empty, sham, pretend series of relationships. Because it says he goes into the far country and he spends all his fortune in basically, I suppose today you would just say wine, women and song. And, and, and when the chap at the bar is buying drinks for everybody, it's amazing how many friends he suddenly has. When someone's pockets are full of an endless flow of money, it's amazing how many sham pretend relationships take place but as his money dwindles and as in Jesus telling this story the, the, the famine comes into the country and he, he suddenly finds he has no friends there's no relationship it was all just words and, and based on what they could get out of him and that's where you find this poor fellow, sitting with the pigs, the only sort of a job that he could get. And in those days, the pigs were not in pens. They, they roamed out in the countryside and the, the pig herders had to roam with them and basically live with them. And, and, and that's where he's ended up. But it's all about, why, why all that behavior? Why all that wanton living? Why does he end up with the pigs? It goes back to the fact, a broken relationship, a refused love, a go it alone in my independence, you see. That's what it's about, broken relationship. And, and the father, I say, never stops loving the boy, never stops loving. And as the boy is going, it's forgiveness that is sent to him by the father. 
the father is longing for that relationship to, I was going to say healed, but really obviously the son had never received of his father's love. And that's why he's getting out. And, and, and so the father's longing is that there shall be a real and genuine relationship, that this broken relationship shall in fact resurrect and that's why in the story you you have to remember Jesus is the most magnificent teller of tales and and, and he, he's in this parable the details he said his father saw the returning boy when he was yet a great way off which tells me the father was scanning the horizon day after day month after month where that boy, the, the last sight of him when his silhouette went over the hill and he was gone, the father's eyes ever returned, ever returned, like compass north. He was always waiting for that silhouette to come back over the hill so that when he saw him yet afar off, he knew that's his son. He knew the silhouette. He knew the way his son walked. And he runs to him because from the father's side, he, he had never broken relationship. He had never cast his son away. He's always searching and longing for a resurrection relationship when his love will be received and he who is the giver of love shall be fulfilled in a son who receives it. That's the heart of the parable. It's relationship. It's all about love. Love refused and then love resurrected, received. Now, of course, the, the, the son in now in the far country, going through what I've just described, he, he has no understanding of that. I... He, he is not described as someone who deliberately breaks relationship. He doesn't know anything about relationship. To him, father just simply meant an authority figure, and I want to get away and do my thing and be my own person. He knows nothing of the love that he has refused. He knows nothing of a broken relationship, but... What steals on him in that far country is a sense of guilt and shame as he recognizes he squandered a fortune and he's ended up without a friend and he's among the pigs. And if you know anything about the book of Leviticus or if you know anything about the Jewish people, you know that to touch a pig, to smell a pig, let alone to eat a pig. No, that in Leviticus is described as an abomination. And so he sits there and he anticipates back, back home at the ranch, all he can anticipate back there would be judgment. That, that's how he sees things. You see, he doesn't know his father. He's never had a relationship with his father. He doesn't know that love that already has forgiven him and love that now longs to bring him back home. He knows nothing of that. And so his mind passes thoughts through this prism of the, uh, the face of his father distorted and twisted by his own concepts of father. And so the father he's invented in his head is a father that will judge him for what he's done, reject him, and, and sentence him to some punishment. I might say at this point in the story, the Pharisees would be nodding vigorously. Uh, as far as a Pharisee was concerned, a son in a far country who's doing what he's doing, who has treated his father in this way, such a son should surely be punished, probably a lifetime punishment if he ever came home. And there in the far country, 
sitting among the pigs that he lived with, you you have something uh, in your more ancient versions. Um, it, it says he came to himself. In my version here, it says, and when he came to his senses. Um, but when, later on, when his father describes what happens, he describes it as he, the boy was essentially dead. You could say he was in a coma of, of spiritual death. He was, he was in a darkness woven by lies concerning who his father is. But he's beginning to wake up. Beginning. Oh, he's got a long way yet. But he's beginning. And in that beginning... What 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 does how does it happen? He remembers something. Oh, it was a long time ago. But there sitting among the pigs, starving to physical death, and and in this inner mental, emotional, spiritual coma, but there comes the first ray of light. He remembers when it must have been springtime or could have been the end of the summer. It was when the father back on the ranch had to hire extra help. And in the Bible, they're called hired servants. They were people who came around five o'clock in the morning into the marketplace and offered themselves for a day's work to any farmer that needed help. And that was it. They would haggle a price for the day's work, and that was it. They would be taken back to the ranch, and springtime it was when they put in the seed and turned the land. And then later on in the summer, the harvest, they needed extra help at those times. But you see, he remembers when all those hired servants were there and the father, he suddenly remembered something about his father. He said, my, my father gave them a meal. That's not in the contract. You come and you, you, you bring your own lunch and work, get paid at the end of the day. But he said he remembered his father giving a lunch to these hired servants. That was over and above what was expected of a rancher. And he remembers the laughter and the joy because he said the, he remembered that table. They had enough and to spare. It's a phrase that describes pushing back your body from the table saying, I couldn't eat another thing. And he remembered his father gave that kind of table that groaned under the food. He gave it to hired servants. He did a lot more than just pay them for the day. And he remembers the laughter of those men, the joy that they were full and they'd had a feast together. And he realized that that's what my father was really like and then it goes because he's a bit off now but it, it i said it was the beginning of light that is coming into his darkness so he gets it a bit wrong but it was light and he says you know if i went back and and, and i became a hired servant which would mean i'm my dad would hire me any time he needed extra help. At least I'd get decent food, at least in springtime and harvest. As I say, he's a bit off. He does, still doesn't know anything about his father except that one memory of a generous father and joy. But then he begins, what shall I say? When I, go, when I go back, what on earth can I say? And so he begins to spin a speech in his mind. I'll say this. It's 
basically it was a speech that was looking for, or shall I say, negotiating a deal that he would come and he would live in town. He, he would have an arm's length relationship to his father. But the deal was, anytime you need extra help on the farm, would you pick me first? I'll be your hired servant. And of course, that comes on dad's ranch, comes with a meal. But in there... Oh, what a speech, what a speech. He said, I I have sinned against heaven and and, and have sinned against you. That is, there's a gulf between us. I understand there's a gulf. I'm not asking for anything great. I understand you can't touch me. I've sinned against heaven and against you. And then he went even further. He said, I'm no more worthy to be called your son which the plain language that he spoke, it meant that, that I no longer bear the family name. I am no longer part of the family. And so he proclaims it. There's a gulf between us. I understand that. And I understand I'm no longer your son. I lost that right. The, the, the speech is just, it's oozing this cowering, this anxiety who expects punishment but is hoping that he can spin his speech most convincingly to get some sort of a deal. That's that's Pharisee talk. Pharisees would have really enjoyed this story up to this point. Yes, that's what they would expect. And, but at least he's, he's still lost, still doesn't know his father. The relationship is still broken. He doesn't even understand the idea of relationship. All he wants is, let me once or twice or three times a year get a good meal and I'll, I'll be your hired servant. That's the fellow who came down the road, whose silhouette the father saw coming over the hill. And uh, as I said, he came from living with the pigs, and so he smelled like a pig. He probably had pig muck ground into his clothes. And remember, the very smell of a pig was an abomination to the Hebrew people. And so this boy, just by walking down the street, is an abomination. He hasn't eaten. His face is gaunt and hollow, and his eyes are bloodshot, and his hair is matted. This is the kind of fellow that you walk on the other side of the street when you see him coming. And all the time, as he's going down this road home, he's repeating his speech. I've got to get it right. I've got to get it right. I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I'm, I'm no longer part of the family. I'm not worthy of being called your son. Yes. But, but would you make me your hired servant? Over and over he goes. Now, with that mindset, totally, I mean, can you get it? Totally unprepared for what happened. The father is running to him with open arms and tears of joy and laughter as he stutters out the word, and he flings his arms around that filthy character and then buries his face into that filthy skin. And and the margin of your Bible says he repeatedly kissed him and kissed him and kissed him. And then... Through tear-stained face, he looked at him and said, My son! It's all about relationship. The son was told, I mean, that, that had never entered his head that he would be greeted by his father's embrace. Never did he think his father would be laughing for joy. And then the father goes on. Talking of a feast of welcome. It's beyond imagination. Never, never thought it. 
that his father wants him? I mean, if you followed my thought here, this wasn't, no. No, I'm no more worthy to be called your son. He's basically saying, I, I understand, keep your distance. Just listen, can we strike a deal here? And the father embrace the father wants him and instates him to full son in the house. And then the father draws him into insane rejoicing killing the fatted calf and bringing in the musicians and the whole jolly village to boot. It's the father. It's the father who's beside himself with joy. And of course, somewhere in all of that, and this tells me that Jesus is portraying to us a son that doesn't have a clue what's going on. Because in the middle of this explosion of rejoicing that the son Jesus depicts the son as getting his silly speech out and so he says you know I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you I'm no more worthy and basically I mean read it yourself but basically the father said shut up he didn't but his actions surely did because he cut into the speech. He did not let the boy finish the speech, but rather announced his plans for hilarious rejoicing. Rejoice. Rejoice with me. Rejoice with me is necessary. We just had to be merry and rejoice. This word rejoice, if if you read through the scripture, it's a word that is all over the Bible. I mean, from the beginning, you, you come across this word rejoice. It's a big word with God. Well, what does the word mean? Because we don't really use this word in English today, not much. Only when you read the Bible in church. Okay, rejoice. It is joy, joy that is expressed. It is joy that cannot be kept inside. That, when you keep it inside, is called gladness of heart. But joy is this inner gladness that just must. It's the necessity to express it. It is joy that you, the persons around, can hear. You could say it's accompanied by laughter, but could I put it this way? It's pure laughter. It is true love, joy, laughter. Because in actual fact, at this point in time, I mean, how could the story have been told? that when the boy begins to give his speech, yeah, the father could have laughed, laughed in disgust. There's many ways to laugh, you know. He could have laughed in sarcasm. You've got to be kidding. After all this time, you're coming home, and you, you, you see, he could have, it could have been a mocking laugh. It could have been a bitter laugh remembered the fortune he'd given this kid and he went and squandered it. No, this is pure laughter, pure joy that has to laugh. It's a word that, especially in the Hebrew language, literally means to leap in the air and spin around in a dance of joy, which the Hebrew people did on a regular basis. And so he says, joy expressed. It's, it's a delighting heart that overflows into speech and actions. It is inner joy that rises and finds expression in physical expression. Rejoice. It's the sound of extreme joy. 
and total satisfaction in the object of your joy. You could say it's a volcanic eruption of joy. Or you could say, and I don't know any other way of saying this, it's a holy vibration of life energy. Because in Proverbs it says that a merry heart is a medicine to our whole being. There's healing energies in this kind of rejoicing. And it's, it's joy that must reach out to others. You could say it's contagious joy. Well, I, I think we got the point. Um, <laughs> do I need to say any more? That's rejoicing. Put all that together. Now, this chapter, and especially this story and this father, it is saying that it was necessary for the father to rejoice over this one son. Do you hear that? Remember, remember Jesus is saying, this is exactly what God is like. Does that come through to our heads? This is not a stern father glaring down at his son and saying, I pardon you. Go and get changed. No. This this is a son who hasn't opened his mouth since he was told to stop his stupid speech. Nor will he open his mouth. He seems to be in a state of absolute confusion. It is the father who is talking, the father who is acting, the, the father who is this volcano of joy. Here, this is what God is like. And I, I can say to everyone watching and listening, and, and, and every one includes me, let it, let it come within us and possess our minds that God the Father wants us. He likes us. He delights in us. He embraces us to bring us home. You see, all through this parable, repentance is to the fore. You know, it, it says there's such rejoicing in heaven over one who repents. You see, and, and I won't give you the history of the word repent, but it got a long, long, long way from what it means in the Bible. And, and tragically, it's still with us that we, we think repentance means that I've got to change my behavior. I've got to be sorry, sorry, sorry. And I've got to weep over what I've done. And I'm a miserable, wretched, rotten I'm sorry. I know that goes over well in many places, but that's not what the word means. You see, it's not what it means. The word means, and if, if you're into Greek, the word is metanoia, and it means literally to change one's mind. It means to see things totally differently. So, the word uh, all through these, uh, the, these verses on repent, it means to see what God is like differently. Because everybody listening to Jesus understood what God was like through the prism of the Pharisees who described him as that judge condemning punishing and ready just to get his hands on you and let you know what you've done wrong. And Jesus gives these stories and says, this is what God is like. He's a God who runs down the road, unashamed of his love for you. He's a God who puts his arms around your filthy body person and he's not embarrassed by you, but announces to everyone, this is my son, this is my daughter. Repentance means I dare to believe that.
you see. The son is coming home and he cannot even imagine that. But somewhere in there, in his stunned, confused moment, as he's being hugged and kissed, he repents. That is, he has a total, radical change of mind concerning who his father is. His father. His father is is love. His father is forgiveness. His father is... Or eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor has it entered into the mind of man, neither to be conceived by the mind of man. All the, the, the Father's love. But now the gospel is the announcement of that to us by the Spirit. The sound of rejoicing that brings about a repentance of heart to dare, and I mean dare to believe, that the God I thought hated me, couldn't stand me, is the God who embraces me and weeps for joy that I'm home. That sound of rejoicing, it was the dawning light of salvation to the boy. Interestingly, it was that rejoicing that enraged the Pharisees. Because that's exactly what was happening at the table when Jesus started to tell these stories. Jesus was having a feast and there was laughter with tax collectors, the pawns of the Romans. Oh, I mean, get it, this twisted image of the father. A father, I mean, the beautiful face of this father that radiates love in the mind of that boy. That beautiful face has been twisted, contorted with, with anger to become a condemning judge so that he's afraid of the consequences of coming home so that he sits and he condemns himself, he punishes himself. And that speech, you know, if you look at it, how can I put this? It's a speech in which he's agreeing with what he thinks his father is like. So his father is going to condemn him. Boy, you've sure messed up your life. I gave you so many gifts and you squandered and so on. Yeah, that's what my dad is like. So I, I, I'm going to go along with my dad. And I'd be, yeah, I sinned, you see. Uh, my, my dad would never. He would be ashamed of me, embarrassed at me, doesn't want me at his table. So, yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll, uh, yeah, I'm not worthy to be called his son. I'll be a hired servant. His speech is agreeing with that distorted, twisted image that he has of the Father. Was it in a hope that he would gain a lighter sentence if he agreed? I don't, I'm not sure about that, but think about it. But anyway, what instead? Instead, he, I suppose... At best, he could imagine being ignored, silence, rejection. Maybe that would be better than a beating. Or maybe he would be summoned to the Father's office to hear his punishment. Whatever. Instead, he gets this Father who is running down the road. Incidentally, sort of a sidebar, but old fellows of that age, once you get over 30 in the Bible days, you didn't run. They were called elders. And and elders walked sedately, you see, with, and of course their long flowing robes. 
and that they were respected and honored. It was the young chaps who ran. And of course, when you ran, if you're wearing those long coats, uh, you'd, you'd have to pull it up. In your older versions of the Bible, it calls it girding up your loins. You, you pulled up that robe and tied it around you in a fashion, something like Bermuda shorts, and, and then you could run. For, for the father in this culture to run, to, to lift up his robes of an elder and tie it and make Bermuda shorts and, and display his, his, his legs with, with their veins. And, oh, Lord, I mean, embarrassment. I'm, I'm, I'm ashamed to look at him in that culture. But he, he runs. He runs shameless, uninhibited. To embrace, to bear hug, to kiss, and say, now share my joy. And throw away that silly speech. I mean, I say it again, this is the very last thing the boy could ever imagine. Laughter, acceptance, a feast that involved the whole village to welcome him home to a forgiveness that's already been given, to be honored to wear his father's best robe and put his father's shoes on his feet and to put the family ring on his finger, to enter into relationship. Something he'd never had before, never seen, never understood it. And so he's out of control. He doesn't know what to do. He's speechless. All we know is that he repented. We know he did. That is, he changed his mind regarding who his father really is. And he changed his mind in the light of his father's embrace. Maybe if you can just get what I've just said. See, repentance to so many that I've talked to is, as I say, you you get terribly upset about things or something you've done. And, you know, in many churches, you know, many people who are listening to me, you you know, you you go forward and you, you make appropriate sorrowful noises and people descend on you and pray and you promise God I'll never do that again. We think that's repentance. No, actually it's a total reverse. Repentance is sitting back in speechless wonder, bordering on confusion that he loves me. He wants me. Yeah, I, he hasn't mentioned change of behavior. He hasn't mentioned anything about punishment. He just loves me. And what does that do? For you to receive that. That you are love. For God so loved the world, so loved you and I, and that love defined, not as a swampy sort of niceness, but defined in that he gave his only begotten son. That the love that he has to us is defined in Jesus, in his death, his bloodshedding, and in his resurrection. He loves. And repentance, now with a new understanding of who God really is, leads to trust. That if that's the way he is, I trust him. That he accepts me. He trusted and committed himself to the Father's love. Think about that one. That's faith. Faith is that I commit myself and I believe in, and believe means to live in accord with, that the Father laughs with joy over me. 
And by the time the parable is winding down, he's joined in with the father's laugh. He's laughing with the father. They're dancing on the front lawn. He's at the feast. You know something? That changes behavior. First of all, I see the kind of God this is. And out of that comes behavior change. By this time in Jesus telling the parable, the Pharisees are beside themselves with horror, with anger. What he's saying is blasphemy. Blasphemy. That the Father should embrace and kiss this abominable creature that's covered in pig muck who has rebelled and and dishonored his father and, and blasphemy obscene ridiculous have you noticed all false gods all gods invented by humans encouraged by demons all of them are terrifying. And even if they're not so terrifying, they are very serious. You see, humankind, you and I in darkness, never associate God with this extreme love and certainly not with laughter and joy. We don't. Come on. Holiness. God is holy. I really don't know what you believe that word means. But I'll hazard a guess that for a great number listening to me now, holiness is something very solemn. In fact, holiness produces a kind of religious sadness. There's something of the atmosphere of a funeral home about holiness. I mean, really, holiness is just an awful lot of things you can't do and a lot of things you've got to do that you don't really want to do, but that's holy. Holiness, to so many people, is unsmiling. Almost irritated by any sign of mirth or laughter, get taken out of the church if you had some laughter. Holiness. It's all about judgment, hell, damnation. Holiness. It means I grovel before this God who can't stand the sight of me. And then when we think we're holy, Lord help us, um, then we have, I, I suppose we think we're being like God. We look down our nose and we sneer at people that we have deemed unholy. Like the Pharisee, we say, I thank you, O God, I'm not like other men. We live life with a religious sneer. We even say sinners with a certain holy taint. And we're afraid of sinners because they're not like us. They do this and they go there. Oh God, help me. Don't let me see it. Don't let me hear it. We go to work and we say, don't talk around me because I'm holy. I don't want to hear your conversation. Why? Because that kind of thing, they believe that sin is infectious and they'll catch it if they hang around sinners. I'm sorry if that was a caricature, but that's what I was raised with. That's holy. That's holiness. And what's this saying? This is saying holiness is the laughter of God. Holiness is his arms of embrace. Holiness draws us to his heart, and it's in that love I discover the cleansing blood of Jesus. The Pharisee says, Stop this childish nonsense. 
Laughter. I can't hear it. I cannot look upon it. Keep the rules. Or you'll be condemned. Oh, they laughed. They laughed at this fairy story talk. The hope and the faith that these tax collectors could ever be accepted. But Jesus portrays this son as laughing with the father. While Pharisees would laugh at, faith laughs with. Daring to believe this incredible, mind-blowing revelation of God's love that laughs with joy at our reception of forgiveness. Laughs with joy that we're, we're home. Laughs with joy that he now can bestow upon us the inheritance and we become the heirs of God He's the one laughing long before we do. We, we catch up with God and begin to laugh for joy and give praise and thanks to him. Huh. You see, this that you have got yourself into through trusting Jesus, it's described in the Old Testament as you, you God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you have turned my mourning into dancing. That's the scripture. You've turned my mourning. I was like a man at a funeral, my own funeral. But then I discovered who you really were, and you turned the whole thing into dancing. And then again he says, you've given me a garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Jesus at the Last Supper said, my joy, my joy, that he talks about in this passage. My joy I give to you. I am rejoicing that I've laid hold upon you, brought you home. And you'll see it and respond and receive my joy. And then the Holy Spirit, who is God from God inside of us, the fruit of the Spirit, the result of the Spirit's presence is joy, says Galatians 5.22. Peter said this life is joy, unspeakable and full of glory. And this dimension in which we live in Christ Jesus, the kingdom of God, is righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Well, my time is come. Gone. <laughs> I I share this with you. This is where I've lived for over half a century. Every year I go back to this passage and say, Holy Spirit, show me more of what's here. And I don't build doctrine on parables, but this parable leads me to the rest of the Bible. This is who God is. And so... I say to myself one more time, as I say to you, repent, renew our mind to dare to see God as he truly is revealed in Jesus and in fellowship with him through the Holy Spirit and believe in your heart in the love of God, the love of his delight over you and let your laughter join his. And the howls of rage sometimes and anger and rejection that come when you dare to believe in a God like this. Understand those howls of protest and rage are really Satan's pain and, and the crucifixion of the flesh. It's you are called to this God. Well, I'm not through yet. There's a lot more in this chapter. So, I'll see you next week. And now the blessing of God who is almighty love, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Open your eyes to see and comprehend that which is beyond human knowledge 
that you shall have the revelation of this God, this laughing God who is love. So I bless you. And so it is.